economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. All right. Well, I think I want to first uh, thank Bob Jamison, who is poll watching tonight and couldn't make tonight. He's going to be here on Thursday. He gave me a call earlier. He's been a big supporter of our uh, institute. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University has been around for about three years, and it's really been set up to serve undergraduate students and uh, some high school students through recruiting efforts and otherwise. And then we do some community events like we're well, like we're doing tonight. We like to think of ourselves as the Hillsdale of the Midwest, uh, at least uh, growing that direction. So if you've got kids or grandkids that are looking for um, a university that focuses in on uh, free enterprise and um, economic freedom, political freedom, religious freedom, these are all topics that we explore. Uh, we're going to have our philosopher, uh, Dr. Justin Clark, take the lead here on Bitcoin. He's the one that introduced me to this book. Uh, well, approximately four or five years ago when I was teaching a money and banking class and uh, I read it, Bitcoin was relatively new. And so he's uh, really our resident expert. And um, you might ask, well, why, why is Bitcoin even in uh, uh, an institute uh, where we're talking about human flourishing and uh, different types of freedom? And, and the reason is that it is a, a decentralized system that doesn't have any government intervention um, even possible with it, uh, short of coercion and other things. And so we'll be dabbling on a little bit of those topics as we go through tonight, but it is so important to have a firm foundation in um, what is money and why has some forms of money failed and what when the government does dabble in controlling money, uh, what's been the history of that? And the book does a really nice job of setting that up as we go through, which will give us a deeper understanding as we move into the technicalities of, of, of what Bitcoin is. And so um, at the end of tonight and at the end of Thursday night, by the way, we'll, we'll kind of pass the hat around a little bit. We have a Gorton Institute donate button if you want to continue to um, you know, if you think about supporting us and what we uh, did tonight, uh, we do other speaking engagements and sometimes we have fees and, and this particular one, like I said, was more of a favor to one of our big supporters, Bob Jameson. So um, definitely uh, nothing required, but we'll pass the hat around, so to speak, at the, at the end with a link to our uh, donate button for that tax deductible gift if you choose to do that. So, um, Justin, I think it's probably time. Let me introduce Peter too. So, uh, Dr. Peter Jacobson is our other economist on board. Um, so he is our Gorton Institute economics professor of research and education. Um, and then I'm the director of the Institute. And then uh, Justin Clark is our Menard family uh, professor of philosophy and ethics. And so he has got a keen mind. He's so sharp. Um, I know he's not going to let you down on all of his knowledge on this particular topic. So uh, Justin, take it away. Great. Um, so yeah, like Russ said, I'm Justin Clark. Um, I've been in interested in Bitcoin for over a decade, and I've kind of been um, you know involved in it probably since 2013. Um, and I, I really like this book for the reason that um, it approaches Bitcoin in terms of a problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve. And I think a lot of the material that you can get on Bitcoin kind of just will treat the tech side of Bitcoin or just approaches Bitcoin from a technical perspective. 
Um, and really there's, um, there's a lot of economic motivation um, and in particular economic theory that motivated the creation of Bitcoin. So before we even get into chapter one, I want to discuss the prologue a little bit and maybe talk a little bit more about um, maybe something that's not even in there about um, the ideological background and origin of Bitcoin. So Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, pseudonymous coder or uh, even group of people, um, originally posted the Bitcoin um, uh, protocol to a group of uh cryptographer cryptographers and he originally said this project should be interesting to people with libertarian leanings um and he he when he deployed the um the protocol of the software at first he said the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work the central bank must be trusted not to debase the currency but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust Banks must be trusted to hold our money and transfer it electronically, but they lend it out in waves of credit bubbles with barely a fraction in reserve. We have to trust them with our privacy, trust them not to let identity thieves drain our accounts. Their massive overhead make, uh, make micropayments impossible. And in the Genesis block of the Bitcoin, which was the first, um, uh, the first unit of record on the Bitcoin blockchain, and we'll talk a little bit more about what those are later, but Satoshi references the um, headline in the Times uh, on the 3rd of January in 2009 that the chancellor is on the brink of second bailouts for the banks. And so this should really indicate that uh, the Bitcoin project was put forward as a kind of response to the centralization uh, of banking and to what Satoshi Nakamoto um, thought of as a kind of um, overreach and uh, misstep of of the central banks in terms of how they responded to the financial crisis and what they have done to our money for the last uh, you know for the last century. Now, Seyfedin, who's the author of this book, he subscribes to a school of economics known as the Austrian School, and this is the name for a group of economic theorists, which includes people like Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize, and Murray Rothbard. And there's a really large overlap between Austrian school economics advocates and political libertarianism. Um, so that that is just to say that this book uh, comes with an ideological frame, an ideological lens. And it is, I think, the ideological lens also that Satoshi Nakamoto uh, viewed the financial world through. So Seyfedin trained as an engineer, and I think it's safe to say he views money as a type of technology. The purpose of this type of technology, or the purpose of you know money, is that it's a technology to preserve value and allow it to be transferred across time and space. And what he does in the first part of this book is kind of describe mediums that have been used for uh, you know, to fulfill this technological role and some of their shortcomings and uh, the ones that have worked well, why they've worked well. Um, so since he views money as a technology, that suggests that he thinks money is something that we can do well or do poorly and something that we can actually improve upon. Um, and so that should kind of give a background for the motivation behind the book and what I think maybe the motivation for the development of Bitcoin is. And so that should 
take us into the first chapter, uh, which is on sound money. And if we think of money as a technology for the transfer of value, um, I mean, I can kick it over to Peter Russ here. I know economists generally have at least three desiderata or things we want out of money or, you know, um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And then uh, I think Saifedean wants to add a couple things to the traditional conception. Yeah, so I'll jump in there and uh, generally, and some of you may know this, uh, money is considered to have three primary functions. Uh, I'll go over the least important ones first uh, and talk about the most important one last. Uh, the first or the least important of the three functions of money is money's uh, ability to store value. Now, storing value is still important, but the reason it's not uh, as highly ranked as one of the uh, functions of money is that lots of things store value. In fact, basically every asset stores value. That's the nature of assets. So although it's important that money be able to store value, it's not a unique feature of money by any, mean, by any means. Uh, the next feature of money is that it's a unit of accounts. And so uh, things are measured in terms of money. We can imagine a world without money, uh, you know, where you're trying to figure out the price of things. And if you don't have money, uh, you don't just need to know the price of oranges and the price of horses and the price of houses, but you need to know the price of the, everything in terms of everything else. So what's the price of oranges in terms of houses and in terms of horses? With no uh, common unit of exchange, uh, you don't actually have this uh, way of accounting for the prices. And also, uh, you know, Double uh, double account or double book accounting uh, would be impossible uh, in a world without money. At least, at least, at least as we conceive of it today, you couldn't really run uh, any like business accounting without having some way of uh, keeping track of your uh, assets and liabilities uh, in terms of money. Uh, how could you do it if you had uh, just like again oranges and you know you can imagine a grocery store trying to do this? They're trying to keep a track of oranges and cash registers and. Uh, you know, all this stuff on one sheet where these aren't comparable. And lastly, kind of the most important, I'd say that the defining feature of money is that money is a medium of exchange. And so uh, the big problem that money solves, at least from an economist's perspective, is the problem of the double coincidence of wants. The double coincidence of wants is the idea that in order to trade with someone, if you want to barter, you have to find somebody who has the thing that you want, and they also have to want the thing that you have. And so, for example, I always uh, bring this up with my students in my class. You know, I am basically selling economics lectures. I do it, uh, you know, kind of through this third-party Ottawa University. But that, at the end of the day, that's the product that I'm offering is those economics credit hours. Uh, and I ask students in my class to raise their hands if they have a parent who's a pediatrician. It's very rare that somebody raises their hands. And uh, an easy point to bring up is, well, the problem is I have kids. And so if none of you have a pediatrician and I'm trying to sell you my economics credit hours, if we don't have money, if we don't have this third object that we can exchange, this medium, uh, then I'm probably not going to be teaching you economics. I I'm going to look for some other job that's going to get me a pediatrician that I can serve, or I'm going to go to a different market. Uh, so money basically lowers the cost of you having to solve this double coincidence of wants. Instead, if you have this third thing that everybody wants, money, uh, then you don't have to worry about finding the person who wants exactly the thing you have because uh, everyone has that thing. Everyone has the money. And so these are the three kind of uh, 
economic, um, we'll say, functions or features? Of I'll money? just add a few Russ, things. You, um, you know, the definition of money is anything that's generally accepted as a medium of exchange. And so that's why uh, when Peter says we kind of naturally seek this to solve problems of wanting to trade with each other because there are win-win benefits from ex exchanging with each other. And so humans naturally seek out a medium of exchange. And so the book does a nice job of highlighting various types of medium of exchange that have been tried and then ultimately why they failed in uh, those cases due to government intervention or some other things that those things uh, might go away and then they seek another medium of exchange. So when we look at places like Zimbabwe where their currency is worthless, then they start looking for trades and then ultimately they found US dollars were solid and they started using US dollars. So humans are always going to try to seek something like that to serve as money. And so it's really part of the deal. It just comes with the package because it's it's not convenient to try to solve that double coincidence of wants um, as we go. And the stability of money, the store of value is an important part that the government has cheated on us uh, this last couple of years with our 9%, 8-9% inflation that we have today. And so those are some of the issues that we try to address as well that they're not pumping out money, spending money they don't have, which is essentially, and unfortunately, the story of the United States, I kind of thought maybe we were done with that. But lo and behold, the pendulum finally swung the other way from the 1970s. And here we are with 9% inflation trying to solve that problem again. And so uh, Bitcoin is an answer to some of these modern day problems that countries around the world face uh, because it is completely decentralized. So uh, great. Um, I think that a couple of the concepts that uh, Saifedean raises in chapter one are uh, the concept of hard money, which he defines in terms of stock to flow, um, where the stock of a money is the amount of money that's in circulation and the flow is the amount of new money that can uh, be added to the current stock. And he gives, he's going to give some examples, especially in chapter uh, three on monetary metals um, of uh, things that have been tried to, uh, to function as money. But if they have a low stock to flow ratio, meaning that the flow uh, is high relative to the stock or even can be high, this, this makes that monetary uh, medium very bad at storing value. And it's not just that, you know, when we want this double coincidence of wants, that we want something that somebody else also currently wants. Um, we also want something that we think future people will want. And so we want this saleability across time, too. And that's part of what the store of value is, right? We want something that we think um, will have value in the future, too. And one thing that we can um, realize is that. If the stock to flow ratio is low in the sense that we think, well, um, you know, at any time in the future, the, the amount of this asset that I'm currently, you know, spending a lot of my time to try to acquire can just be multiplied arbitrarily. We, we would have a lot of doubts about whether or not um, the, uh, these future people will have uh, this want for this thing that we are currently spending so much of our time trying to acquire. So having a high stock to flow ratio is something that makes a money hard for Saifedean. 
Um, so that's the concept of hard money. Um, and hard money um, is better at being saleable across, especially across time. Um, and uh, a couple of the things that we would want out of a money is that it, it be very divisible um, or at least uh, potentially divisible. Um, if you make, uh, you know, if you have houses and I have oranges, um, it's, you know, it's very hard for you to get one orange if you have one house to sell, right? Um, so we want something that's divisible into small, very small units. Um, and then uh, we also want something that is decentralized or at least decentralizable, uh, meaning that there isn't one person who's even potentially in control of it all. Um, so nobody can, if something is uh, centralized or centralizable, you can be cut off from your access to something that you even supposedly own, right? So this is a kind of strong uh, requirement of ownership that you be able to take actual possession of it. Um, so those are things that I think maybe uh, might be implied by the three general economists um, desiderata for what, what qu will qualify as money. But as we can see throughout history, things used as money have satisfied this, um, these other uh, requirements uh, better or, or more poorly. And so that uh, kind of leads us into the part on monetary history. And I think it, it's very interesting at this point to um, talk about what Stephen says about rhinestones, because it's a, a kind of a completely different way to think about money, but it is the form of money that he's going to bring up later. And he's, he's talking about rhinestones on purpose because it is the most uh, similar to the way the Bitcoin network operates. So uh, the rhinestones um, were uh, the form of money on, um, what was the name of the island? I'm blanking. Um, so it was a small island in the South Pacific, um, uh, small enough to where, uh, you know, uh, everybody pretty much knew each other. And the way the rhinestones- Justin, yes. it's Yap, by yeah. the way. Yap, yeah, the Yappies, yeah. So on the island of Yap, um, there were these large stones that functioned as money. And the way they functioned as money, it wasn't that actually, uh, that people actually walked around and actually carried the stones and traded them with each other. But everybody on the island knew who owned what stones. And the way you purchased something with stones that you owned is you just kind of announced, oh, I'm transferring ownership of this stone to somebody else. And since everybody on the, on the island knew each other, this was feasible to do. And so you actually have a situation where even though no stones are moving themselves, the ownership of the stones is moving. Um, and since you could own a portion or a, you know, a half of a stone or something like that, um, this ended up functioning very well for the people on Yap as a currency. Um, especially because these uh, rye stones were made of limestone that wasn't actually available on Yap. So it was, it was very, very labor intensive for anyone to increase the stock of rye stones. Um, and so I, th I think we should just keep this in mind because uh, it's a, a method of exchange that seems a little bit alien to us who are used to actually trading bits of paper or bits of you know, coins or something like that as money. 
but um, it's similar to the way Bitcoin works. And it actually might be similar to the way even something like, um, you know, a, uh, a bank um, balance sheet works right now, um, if we actually think about it. Do you have anything else to say about the, the rye stones? Yeah, that's, I, I think I overlooked that when I first learned this and read the book. And I think it is such a good connection to Bitcoin to think of there being this one big Bitcoin that can be broken into small pieces in a sense, or fractional ownership of this mass. Whereas I think the word Bitcoin is a little misleading because we start thinking about it being little coins that we can exchange physically, like you were just saying, we're so used to paper. And so I think if the readers really do key in on that Rystone, it, it does help the understanding of this abstract, digital, non-physical Bitcoin that we're dealing with. Um, it's actually a very good uh, connection. So I don't really care about owning stones, right? But if I'm getting what you're saying, then I own a half a stone and you've got a bunch of coconuts. And so I'd like to have some coconuts. I got the stone because I had some fish and and Justin had a stone. <laughs> and I wanted the stone to trade for coconuts. And so I gave, Justin gave me a stone and I gave him some fish. Then I gave my interest in the stone to the guy that had the coconuts and everybody's happy. And I never had to move the stone. Exactly. And what, what makes got this it. function so well as money on Yap, which is small enough, is that as long as everybody agrees on who owns what um, and the stock uh, isn't wildly increasing, then this can function as a good money. And so the value of my coconuts and my fish are recognized by people and there's no reason to inflate it or deflate it because, hey, that's what fish are worth, you know, a half stone and coconuts are worth a quarter of a stone. So, yeah. Got it. Um, anything okay. from you, Peter? Go ahead, guys. Um, now, one, one of the go ahead, go ahead. Jack. One of the questions I'm going to want to work in here is we're doing a lot of work on a biblical worldview, and I know you guys uh, know what that means. Um, does Bitcoin support, or is it is it adverse to a biblical worldview. Just think about that as we're moving forward. I don't expect you to answer right now because we're really in the early stage of this. I, I, I just want to jump on it quick because uh, I think I have a fairly quick answer. Um, in order to carry out our vocations and what we think God has intentions of, uh, to be able to exchange and have relationships with each other, uh, that's not distorted by a government that's doing irresponsible things. I'm not saying the U.S. government in this case, even though that's possible to uh, but other countries where the currency has collapsed, it causes us to not be able to flourish and have relationships with our neighbors. And so the answer to me is simple. It's absolutely within a uh, biblical worldview that we can have something like Bitcoin to help facilitate our relationships with our neighbors. Now, uh, the Rystones failed, right? Um, and one of the reasons they failed is because somebody uh, got shipwrecked on the island, realized that, oh, they're using giant limestone uh, stones over here for, uh, for money. I know there's limestone on this uh, island, two islands over. It's difficult for them to get it, but I bet I could do it. And so he went and quarried a bunch of limestone, came back with his own Rystones, right? 
Um, and the, the local chiefs said, uh, you know, we know these are these are counterfeit rhinestones, <laughs> but some people did accept them. And then what happened was, you know, um, the uh, the supply of rhinestones um, got flooded with counterfeit rhinestones and it no longer functioned as a good currency. Um, and this story about uh, a, a money that's being accepted and starts out scarce, but then gets flooded with, uh, with stock via flow, um, Seyfedean says this has happened over and over and over again. Um, there, are, uh, there are better and worse examples of this. Um, the best example, the thing that has worked the best so far has been something like gold. Um, but uh, what, we'll, what we'll see is that even when we, we start out with a gold standard, this kind of gets subverted uh, by governments. And uh, when we start out with a gold standard, then we end up with tickets for gold that the government is holding. And then we just end up with tickets. And they say, you can't even redeem these pieces, uh, these tickets for gold anymore. Um, and so in each case, what happens is um, our money gets diluted and uh, the wealth um, gets diluted and disappears. So um, perhaps maybe a discussion of how we ended up on gold rather than something like silver and copper. Should we should we run through that real quick or should we maybe move to time? I, I think at least a short um, discussion on the, the, the stock of gold versus the flow and why it worked, uh, some of the properties of it, just maybe even just a few comments on it, I think would be worthwhile since that is the best thing that we've had in the past. Yeah, so... So gold's pretty much indestructible. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't get tarnished really. Um, it lasts for a very long time, and it's very, very rare. Um, no matter how much energy we actually put into gold mining, um, it's something like the the largest increase in a year over year basis was something like three percent, um, I think. And um, what this means is that um, if the price of gold shoots up. Um, even if a lot of people go to try to mine more gold, they're not going to be able to increase the stock uh, that much. And that's contrasted with something like copper, right? Where the uh, copper is more abundant. So if the price of copper rises, that's going to incentivize people to mine copper. And copper is so abundant that if the price rises high enough, a bunch of people are going to mine it and flood the market with copper to sell, in which case the price will come cascading back down. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I mean, yeah. the economist. No, I, I'm good, Peter. You got something? Yeah. So I mean, uh, and I think Safi even mentions uh, Carl Manger and and kind of the spontaneous nature of money uh, and how commodity money kind of rose to prominence. And so the one of the things that Safdin's drawing from is uh, an economist, uh, Ludwig von Mises, and one of his sort of intellectual mentors, Carl Manger's their history of money. And one of the insights of this history of money is that uh, commodity currency, specifically silver and gold uh, currency, kind of arose naturally. And the way it arose naturally or the way that money arises naturally is that at first people are doing this barter thing. They're looking for someone who has the coincidence of wants. And then as they kind of go about their trading, what you occasionally will find is, well, okay, several people are actually willing to accept this one item in particular. And once you know that a few people are willing to accept one item in particular, uh, we could say like gold, for example, 
uh, you will be more likely to accept that item in particular too, because you know you can then turn around and use it for someone else. And so if a, one of these uh, you know, uh, goods and services that's being exchanged on, on the economy has a lot of the features that make money good, uh, you know, things like durability, like Justin mentioned, or I think the stock to flow ratio is part of this too. Uh, people are going to naturally gravitate towards that. And uh, this becomes almost kind of exponential. Uh, the more people who accept it, the more acceptable it becomes to everybody else because they know that they can turn around uh, and give it to the people who do accept it. So the currency's initial uh, evolution over time uh, throughout the world ha has been sort of this natural process rather than kind of like uh, what the other way we could think of it is like it was planned by someone or that it was a, a law that was put in place. Currency actually tended to evolve naturally and then later be adopted by governments rather than the other way around. I just want to add that um, the reason we're bringing about gold and these rye stones is to tie this ultimately back to Bitcoin. So what we're going to learn later in the book is that Bitcoin has a very slow flow adding to the stock and that ultimately the flow is going to stop and there's going to be a fixed amount of Bitcoin. So now tied back to our rye stone story, the rock can't get any bigger. We have a fixed amount of Bitcoin that we're ultimately getting to. And the durability of Bitcoin is even better than gold because it's non-physical. It's not going to go anywhere. It's permanent. And so these are some of the attributes of why we want to make sure we have these in our mind real well before we get into some of the technical aspects of Bitcoin. But I wanted to foreshadow that a little bit. Great. Um so in his chapter on government money, he, he uh, explains how the government kind of co-opted the, uh, the gold standard, but because for a long time, governments were all on a gold standard, which essentially functioned the same as um, all governments being on the same monetary unit. Um, but at the outbreak of World War I, um, uh, governments largely went off the gold standard and they used this um, to finance war uh, on the one hand, but uh, the other thing that governments did is they, they uh, started issuing certificates uh, redeemable for gold. And then they stopped allowing those certificates to be redeemable for gold. Um, so one of the things that government has done is they're always incentivized to kind of move away from a system that would limit the amount of wealth that they are able to consume, right? This is just the nature of the incentive structure when a government can control the printing press, right? Um, and so his chapter on government money is just a history of failure. And I think Seyfedin's uh, point, and I, I tend to agree with him, is that the structure of incentives for central banks and politicians is such that we should expect them uh, to want to spend more money than they have. Um, we should expect a politician to want to consume more um, and especially to promise their constituents uh, more goodies now at the expense of something that's going to be have to pr uh, produce later. Um, and so this, um, now it's a quick glaze over the, uh, the government money uh, his section, because I think it just is a history of these uh, incentive failures. Uh, but I think what he's getting at there is getting into chapter six, where it's time preference, where, um, you know, probably everyone here knows that uh, in order to build wealth, you need to consume less than you produce, right? Um, and so uh, there's this famous test called the marshmallow test, where if you you put a marshmallow in front of a kid and you say, uh, you know, you can eat this now, but if you wait for 10 minutes, 
And when I come back, I'll give you two. Um, and it turns out that kids who are able to wait for the 10 minutes to get the two marshmallows, they end up doing better over a large metric of, um, or, or a large series of metrics during their life. And the, the idea is something like being able to defer consumption is a very, very important skill for humans. Um, it's, it's what allows you to build wealth. Now, that experiment looks a lot different if you say to the kid, like, hey, you can eat this marshmallow now. And when I come back, it's only going to be 95% as big as it is right now. Um, that would actually encourage the child to consume the marshmallow. If your bits of marshmallow are kind of slipping through your fingers, the, the uh, more you hold on to it, um, that would encourage current consumption. And so uh, the point is that when a money is being inflated and you, the uh, purchasing power of your dollar is evaporating the longer that you hold it, it discourages savings. It encourages you to consume with that money or at least to try to put that money somewhere else into some kind of speculative or you know, safe investment um, if you can find one. But it, it, it turns everyone into kind of speculators and it makes it, very, it makes it impossible to save money over time in money, which is supposed to be um, the safest, most saleable asset across time. I would just uh, add the real world stuff we see in Venezuela uh, is coming to us from this concept of if you're holding the currency and it's being uh, inflated away, you got to go turn it into a real asset. Go to the grocery store, get some cans of soup, get some toilet paper, whatever, something that has a shelf life that all of a sudden becomes your money. So again, as humans, we're seeking something that'll allow us to carry something into future time periods when not functioning properly. So then he gets into um, money being capitalism's information system. Um, oh, I guess actually I should say a little bit too about time preference that, that this just this doesn't just operate on the individual level. Um, societies need to consume less than they produce in order for the society to get wealthier too. Um, and the idea is that when you have a mo monetary policy in place um, that encourages <laughs> consumption over savings, um, you, this, this will be a societal disaster. And I should say here too, uh, sometimes I think this book goes a little bit too far in, in what it's willing to blame on uh, fiat currency. You know, it's not just World War I and World War II. It's you know, modern art, Mark Rothko, I'm sure he thinks Miley Cyrus is, uh, you know, uh, the fault of the, the Federal Reserve too, right? But um, regardless of how, how much you think is attributable to bad currency, it certainly seems that inc encouraging uh, consumption at the cost of uh, savings, even at the margin, is going to be deleterious for society. And so, um, if he's talking about capitalism's information system, uh, uh, I might just hand it over to, to the economists here because I'm sure they'll do a, a better job than me at explaining why money is the information system for capitalism and what happens if you kind of uh, subvert that information system. Yeah, I can go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Um, so 
earlier it was mentioned that uh, money is sort of this uh, or provides the service of being a, a unit of accounts for the economy. Uh, and as a unit of account, it measures uh, the price of things. And one of the things that is actually measuring when it does that is the price of everything relative to everything else. And so if you know that a banana is $2 and orange is $1, you know that uh, one banana is worth two oranges, right? Uh, this is sort of like an automatic thing that comes out of it. And so uh, when society is faced with different ideas of like, well, how much of something should we produce uh, or... You know, another example of this would be like, what should we use to make train tracks or microchips? You know, platinum is a better metal for making train tracks than iron is in terms of efficiency. Uh, but platinum is not used to make train tracks. And the reason is very obvious to us because we have the knowledge based on money that platinum is too expensive uh, to use in train tracks. Likewise, uh, different computer chips are made with different metals. Gold is the best metal to use in computer chips, but not every computer chip requires the efficiency of gold. Uh, so some computer chips use silver, some computer chips use copper. And so the question is, how could we ever figure out, uh, you know, which of these inputs to use and what outputs? And, you know, uh, when you've got competing uses for gold, like you've got a gold ring or a computer chip, uh, when should you have, have the gold ring? This is all very complicated. It'd be very difficult for someone to plan. And so uh, the way that this planning is done is through prices. Uh, basically, because we have buying and selling of these inputs, we have prices for inputs. Uh, so raw materials or capital goods, uh, all of these things are priced because they're bought and sold. And so when entrepreneurs make decisions about, uh, you know, which inputs or which capital goods to use in production, ultimately what they have to do is they have to rely on the price of that good as kind of their guide. Their guide. So if you have a machine that is like double the efficiency but triple the price, uh, you would have no interest in it, right? You would just take the one that's half the efficiency, but one third of the price because you get more bang for your buck, basically. Um, and this is what prices enable the economy to do. And also, it, so you might say, well, then why don't we just freeze things? And this is kind of one of the ways that the Soviet Union considered uh, planning their economy was, well, let's just look at the prices in the, in the American magazines and we'll assign them to our goods. And then we can kind of free ride off of the prices generated that way. But the problem is economic conditions do not stay the same from moment to moment. Over the course of a day, a week, a month, things change really rapidly. And so it might be the case that in the current day, it's not worth it to use gold in a particular computer chip or platinum for train tracks. Uh, but if things change, if conditions change, we could imagine it becoming efficient for us to do those things. Maybe if uh, you know our computers became... Um, all doing, if all of our computers started doing much higher level functions than they do now, maybe all of them would need the uh, gold from the computer chips and we would sort of outbid the people who want gold for rings. Uh, and this sort of information is not communicated on the internet. You don't get a message that tells you that something's become more or less scarce. Uh, if there's an oil rig that explodes off the coast of the United States, uh, people at the gas pump don't think to themselves, man, I really need to use less oil uh, because there's not as much as there was before. Instead, that's communicated through prices. And so nobody has to know if, for example, the oil rig explodes because they're naturally, when the price increases, going to use less oil. And so prices communicate that knowledge and they have that knowledge embedded without actually anyone even having to understand it. And so the, this ability of uh, prices in the economy to give uh, information about the value of goods relative to each other at a particular moment in time uh, is really at the center of what makes the market process uh, 
to this point, uh, for the most successful uh, economic system, capitalism, the most successful economic system, because uh, no other economic system has been able to replicate uh, this this uh, knowledge or information uh, generation and sharing aspects of markets. Russ, do you have anything else? Yeah, I would just add again, foreshadowing where Bitcoin fits into this. And that is that it helps the consumers uh, evaluate relative values of things as Peter was getting into. Um, right now, we have to compete with the government distorting that valuation because uh, with their printing off of money, now all of a sudden, okay, well, what's the inflation? And then what is the real value of copper versus gold versus uh, platinum? So you have to solve two things. You have to figure out what is the government doing with inflation and are they monkeying around with prices? And then is there real innovation, changes, entrepreneurship that are driving something to be more valuable as entrepreneurs go to serve the consumer according to the values and the things that they want to buy. And so uh, having Bitcoin in place where there's a slow growth and ultimately being fixed uh, helps consumers be more efficient in that evaluation. It also, um, having the government be able to print this money lowers the cost, or at least the perceived cost, um, to the public of things like foreign interventions, right? Because um, if we are intervening somewhere or you know, e even uh, it lowers the cost of government programs generally or disguises that cost, people can, you can say, well, I would like this. And the, the government doesn't have to say something like, okay, well, where are we going to get that money from, right? They can just print it off and instead just take a tiny bit of it from everybody. Um, so this, um, this obscures the cost of government action at the same time that it uh, um, you know, distorts prices even between individuals in a market. Um, and so uh, that's, uh, that's part of the reason why Saifedean says that uh, unsound money contributes to war. And it's also part of the reason why he says unsound money undermines individual freedom um, because um, if the government can take your value away, but without having to confiscate anything from you, um, by just printing stuff and giving it to other people, then there's a sense in which um, you have a very tenuous grasp, uh, grasp on your on the value that you've managed to accrue. Um, so I, I know we were coming up on a uh, uh, the end of chapter seven here. I thought maybe we could explain a little bit about the way the Bitcoin network is actually structured um, in terms of it being, and explain how that's similar to like the Rystone model. Um, and then explain, so um, Bitcoin is a protocol and the, I think the best way to think of it is like a very large shared um, spreadsheet. And on this spreadsheet, there will be an entry for everybody. And then that entry is your address. And that address says has your uh, your uh, your balance in it, how many Bitcoin you have, right? Um, and what happens is, uh, you if you have a key to that address, you are able to uh, to send uh, money from that Bitcoin address to any other address on the Bitcoin network. Now, what's been typically a problem for digital money is that. Um, digital goods seem like they aren't scarce in the sense that, you know, if you send me a picture, I can just copy that picture and, and send it to somebody else. So the way Bitcoin solves this problem 
is through uh, mining and uh, blocks. So every 10, every, for every transaction that I want to get send, uh, every 10 minutes or so on the Bitcoin network, um, there's called a, you know, a block on the Bitcoin network gets mined. And what this is, is a group of transactions. And every, every 10 minutes, the entire network agrees on what cells in that database have what number in them. And getting everybody to agree, that is the function of miners in Bitcoin. So you solve a block if you're a miner, if you um, end up solving this really, really hard math problem. And we know it's, it's programmatically hard. Um, so no matter how good people's computers get, blocked, block time is always around 10 minutes. Um, and so every 10 minutes, somebody solves this really, really hard uh, math problem. And it's very easy to verify that they've solved it correctly. Every other node on the network um, can verify that they've solved it correctly. But once that solution happens, then everybody on the network knows what the new state of that spreadsheet is. So everybody, every 10 minutes agrees on who has exactly what in the network. So really in a Bitcoin transaction, it's, it's tempting to think like you, you hand something over or like you send something, really, nothing really gets sent. What happens is that the spreadsheet gets um, certified that there are, that for every unit that left your cell, um, that went to somebody else's cell, every unit that got added to that other person's cell got removed from your cell and there are no more units in that spreadsheet than there were uh, before this block got solved. And if you are the miner that, that solves that block, you get a reward in the sense that some Bitcoin gets added to your cell. And so what happens then is then there's an incentive for people to perform this mathematical function of making sure that everybody on the network agrees every 10 minutes on who has what. So it's like somebody running around yap and, say, and making sure that everybody agrees. And if you're the person who makes sure that everybody agrees, um, somebody gives you a little bit of rye stone, right? And so- Okay, so we're, we're, we're gonna knock it off there and, and answer some questions. We're gonna stop the recording uh, now and that's gonna be our podcast. And we're going to open it up for questions. And then, and I'm sure we've got some, I've got them coming in here, but like crazy. Uh, 